Welcome to this episode of the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. The mission of the Greenville Oaks Church is to inspire people to follow Jesus because we're convinced that following Jesus is the best way of life possible. Find out more about Greenville Oaks at greenvilleoaks.org and connect with us on social media. We would love it if you could rate and review our podcast. It makes it easier for others to find us. And now, on to this week's message with Lead Minister Wade Hodges. It's good to be back with you. It's been a little while. Grateful to Wade and uh, to the leaders of this church for the opportunity to be with you. And we are so particularly grateful for your partnership with us in the Mediterranean Rim Initiative, uh, particularly in North Africa. And when I come, that's usually what I talk about. But Wade actually wanted me to come in and kind of speak into something that fit within this series he's been doing in Mark. So let me start by telling you something about myself. I hate Scrabble. I mean, I hate Scrabble. I I hate all word games because I'm highly competitive and I'm dyslexic. (laughs) Which reminds me of the story of the agnostic dyslexic insomniac. He laid awake all night wondering if there really was a dog. (laughs) Well, stupid as that may be, that's kind of the way my mind dysfunctions. I, I see words when I'm proofreading my own writing, I see words that aren't there. I invert numbers and letters. I can't spell cat if you spot me the C and the A. And one of the things that's very embarrassing to me, and it happens all of the time, I'll go back and read an email that I sent, or I'll see one that somebody's responded to, and I'll realize what a disaster I made of that email. If you read an email from me, you'll probably think that my English teacher was Tarzan. That's just the way my brain misfunctions. And as a result, word games are a torture to me. Fortunately, my wife loves them. And she boggles my mind about that. Uh, And so we just learned we don't play those. So she plays those with her, her family. There's this thing called Wordle. I cannot imagine anything more torturous than to, to, why, why would you do that to yourself? And because of the fact that I have this mental challenge, um, I don't play word games because I hate feeling like a failure. I don't like to be embarrassed. I don't like to be reminded of how weak I am. Now, I say all that to say this. I think that's how most people feel when they read Jesus' teachings. I really do. I think that's one of the reasons why we struggle with the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, scholars through the ages, even Martin Luther, had basically said, this is impossible to do. And the only reason that Jesus gave this teaching was to drive us to grace, because once we see the impossibility of doing Jesus' teachings, all we can do is just turn to God in grace. And I understand that reaction. I just think that that's a mistake. I actually think Jesus gave us this teaching because he thought it would give us life. 
and that it was something that we could live into, if not perfectly, well. But to so many people, the idea of trying to be like Jesus is such a ridiculously impossible task that it's not worth attempting. It's like saying, next year I'm, I'm going to train to swim the Pacific Ocean. It's like, well, good luck with that. You know, uh, I'd be surprised if you get to Catalina Island. Um, I, I really think that's how we view the teachings of Jesus at a gut level. The biggest challenge I think we have in the church is simply this. We don't believe that Jesus knew how to live very well. Now, that may sound crazy to you, but I, I really do believe that. I think that we believe that Jesus knew how to die well and how to come back from the dead, but we're not so convinced that he knew how to live his life well. That Jesus was sweet and he was good and he was idealistic, but he was impractical and he was out of touch with the daily realities that we deal with every single time. Jesus' teachings are great to aspire to, but they're not useful in the real world. We would love to obey the teachings of Jesus, but unfortunately, we have to live in a world where that doesn't work. And if it doesn't work, then we have King's X. We don't have to attempt it. And what that means, to steal more from Dallas Willard, is we become spiritual vampires. We want Jesus for his blood, and that's all. So how do we avoid turning the teachings of Jesus into an impossible legalism that only drives us to despair? How do we use the teachings of Jesus in a way that actually is life-producing? And I want to suggest to you that, this, that the answer to that question is, is in learning to imitate the life of Jesus we can't keep the teachings of Jesus on willpower. We have to imitate the life of Jesus to obey the teachings of Jesus. Because spiritual growth is not about learning how to swim. It's about learning how to float. It is not about tightening our grip. It is about letting go and surrendering in the flow of the Spirit of God as we learn to trust that Jesus not only was nice and sweet, but actually smart. And when we think of Jesus as a teacher, I think we instinctively go to the words of Jesus. If you're in a red-letter edition of the Bible, then you go to the, the red letters, the teachings of Jesus, which I absolutely adore. And, and we think of the Sermon on the Mount, for example, or the parables or the many sayings of Jesus, and that makes sense, and we do need to focus here. And we should read them often, and we should memorize them. And as, as good as it is to read Paul and Peter and James and the others, that's wonderful, that's insightful, but they're not Jesus. Jesus is our primary teacher. Jesus said to us in John 6, the words that I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. And Peter responded to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so don't hear me diminishing the words of Jesus. Jesus' teachings are still his primary way to inform us. And, and Jesus' most powerful teaching was not just, however, his spoken words, but Jesus' most powerful teaching, which I think surpassed even his words, are his life. In John chapter 1, we have that extended opening to the gospel, the prologue, which is a meditation on the word, word. And we are told that God, when he really wanted to speak a word to us, came in the flesh, in the form of Jesus. 
When God wanted to speak most clearly to us, he didn't send a book, he sent a son. He did not send us a map, he sent us a guide. Now, which one would you rather have to go through a difficult passage? A map or a guide? The word of God is not just the Bible. The word of God is a person, Jesus Christ. And the foundational life question we all need to be wrestling with is who is my life model? Who is my mentor? Who sets my pattern, my model for life? It's not just somebody whose works you've read. It's somebody that you have walked the world with. Someone that you have not only heard, but someone that you have imitated. Because we repeat our primary model's practices. And that works both for us and against us. It depends on whether your models are good models or bad models. Did you know that most people who are child abusers are themselves the victim of child abuse? They almost all, if not all, swore they would never do this to others. But when pressures come, they only have one model for how to deal with them. And they live out the model they have seen, not what they intend. Addiction runs in families, not just because genetic predisposition, but because this is the model that was practiced for how to deal with stress and struggle in the world. We live out our models, so choosing our models is very important. Christians are called to be apprentices of a master craftsman. That's what a disciple is, an apprentice of a master craftsman. But our master craftsman is specifically skilled in living well. And Jesus calls us not to just do what he said, but to do what he did. I think that's why we have four Gospels and only one book of Romans. We have four stories filled with Jesus' model. Here's how Jesus behaves. Here's what Jesus does. Do this. Jesus himself said in John 5, 39 and 40, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in him you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. Our life isn't found in a book. It's found in a relationship with a person. And if we're going to be disciples who make disciples, then we have to pay as much attention to what Jesus did as what he said because his model and his habits matter a great deal. Now, this came home to me very powerfully years ago when I was preparing a sermon series on the book of Mark, which I think Wade is in with you now. And one of the things that struck me when I studied the book of Mark is that Mark, more than any other of the gospel writers, refers to Jesus as rabbi or teacher. More times per chapter than any other gospel writers, he calls Jesus rabbi, calls Jesus teacher. But he doesn't actually provide many of Jesus's teachings. Mark doesn't have the long extended teaching passages like the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain. We don't have multiple chapters worth of teaching very often like we do in Matthew who gives us five such long teaching passages. Both Luke and John have lengthy uh, sections, chapters that are just the teachings of Jesus. But Mark only has one chapter as we divide it that's totally devoted to teachings and that's John, I mean Mark chapter four. Most of Christ's teachings in Mark are very brief comments at the end of a story to kind of explain or cap what Jesus just did, to explain his behavior. 
And yet, more than any of the other gospel writers, Mark says Jesus is our teacher. He's our teacher. Now, why call him our teacher so much and not give us many words? Because I think the answer is that Mark is saying Jesus' life is our teacher. Jesus' life is our teacher. And Mark shows us how Jesus lived, not just what he said. And that means if we want the abundant light that Christ offers, we have to imitate his life not just read his words. We cannot keep Jesus's teachings if we don't imitate Jesus's habits. We obviously cannot in, in imitate all of his habits. We, we can't all quit our jobs and never marry and wear tunics and sandals and heal the sick and drive out demons and pick fights with church leaders all the time, although that last one we do fairly well. But beyond some details peculiar to Jesus's time and unique role, there is a rhythm and a logic to Jesus's life that we need to imitate. There's a rhythm and a logic to Jesus' life we need to imitate. And, and the church is, or at least it should be, a community of people who are mentoring each other to move into the life of Jesus. And that means moving from information to formation by providing us with models of imitation. Galen Van Rienen said this so very well, that it's very, very difficult for people to move from information to formation directly. We have, for over 100 years in this country and most of the Western world, and, and extended beyond that for a shorter length of time, tried to transform the world through education. We believe, deep in our bones, that information should lead to transformation, even though we have virtually no evidence that that works. Between information and transformation, there's this middle passage that is so very important called Imitation, imitation, information plus imitation can lead to transformation. But sadly, our churches are built like schools with lots and lots of events designed to give education, but almost no structures and practices for imitation. And for this to change, we're going to have to build modeling relationships into our life. And if our churches won't do it for us, we have to seek it out on our own. Now, this used to happen probably more when we had an informal, more extended family, more clannish kind of existence as human beings. But in the modern world of disconnected individualism and technology, we just don't have many life models. And without living models to show us what Christ -like looks like when it gets up, puts on its pants, and goes out into the world, then we're going to struggle to walk like Jesus. The church is supposed to be Jesus' body continuing the story of Jesus. I love Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, Luke starts by saying, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. That word began is very important because Acts is the story of what Jesus continues to do and teach. He does it in his first body in Luke, a physical body. He does it in his second body, the church, who continue the doings and the teachings of Jesus in the world. Our mission in the church is not the formation of churches, it's the formation of people. And we are committed in the West to creating institutions in the assumption institutions will disciple people, but we haven't really asked the question, what are the disciples, how are they made, and how, are we, how can we structure to do that? And we're never going to get where we're going with the model that we have embraced in most churches. 
And if the church doesn't practice the rhythms of Christ's life, we'll end up with little of his power, and the church will just become one more time-consuming institution leading to greater exhaustion. And it will not be that light and easy yoke that gives us rest. Now, the rhythm of Jesus' life, the rhythm of Jesus' life goes from the desert to the marketplace, from the desert to the marketplace. And I think this is the secret that we miss. Jesus' private habits made his public life possible. There's this weird thing that happens in the life of Jesus. You, You have various ways of kind of setting the stage, the story of how Jesus enters the world, but once Jesus burst onto the scene and he is anointed by the Holy Spirit at his baptism and God declares from heaven, either this is my son or you are my son, depending on which one of the gospels you're reading, and you have this climactic moment and we expect him to start doing something. Instead, what does he do? He disappears stage left. And he goes off into the wilderness for over a month, which is plenty of time for him to fall out of the public consciousness. His first act after being commissioned by the Father for ministry is to go off by himself. That's a really odd way to launch your new ministry. Jesus had no public life or ministry before he went into the desert. And in the desert, he set the direction for his ministry and the character for his ministry. In the desert, Jesus practiced the classical spiritual disciplines of solitude and silence and fasting, meditation and prayer and memorization of recitement of scripture. That is how the rhythm of the life of Jesus begins, in the desert. And that was not a one-time event. It was a regular part of his life rhythm. And if you look for it in the gospels, you see it everywhere. After his first big day of ministry... In Mark chapter 1, during all of the hubbub and all of the healing and all of the excitement and all of the crowds, Jesus gets up early in Mark 1 and goes off by himself to be alone with God. After a big day of healing in Luke chapter 4, it's created all kinds of attention. Luke 4, 42, Jesus goes off by himself to be alone with God. After the feeding of the 5,000, which is such an important story, all of the Gospels tell it. After the feeding of the 5,000, when they're ready to make him king, when, when the, the crowds are coming and, and they're, they're all, this, let's capitalize on this excitement, Jesus dismisses the crowds. He puts all the disciples on a boat to leave him alone, and he goes off by himself to pray. This is the pattern and the secret of Jesus' life. The power of Jesus' ministry came in his private times with the Father, We see the spirit-empowered miracles, but we forget the private time. Jesus explained this in Matthew 6, verses 5 and 6, when he says, When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen, Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, what is that reward? Probably not a new Learjet. Probably not even heaven. I think the reward is the life of God. The spirit of God, the empowering of God, the presence of God. Now, this wasn't new with Jesus. He just perfected it. Look at the life of Moses. Look at the life of Elijah. 
Look at the life of David. What do those men's lives have in common? Extended desert or wilderness experiences. When we meet God in solitude, silence, prayer, and meditation, we create space for God's spirit to come in and bear fruit. So many of us are like cell phones that have never been put on the charger. They just lie there dead. So many of us are like sponges who are so dry we can't be used to clean anything because we never soak in the solution of the Spirit of God. If we don't intentionally meet God in the desert and we go into the marketplace alone, then we're going to experience defeat or sinful pride. We'll either become like the sinners or like the Pharisees, but we will not become like Jesus. And too many Christians simply have no desert experience. We just never build alone and quiet with God into our lives. This is not complicated, people. We just want to be around people and noise all the time. We go, 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 go. And no wonder we're tired and frazzled and irritable and susceptible to all kinds of misbehavior. And while it's important to retreat with our Christian family, that's not the same thing as being alone with God. In silence, to pray and meditate and listen to him. You want to hear God speak? You're going to have to get quiet for a good long while. He's a little shy. He's a gentleman. He will not interrupt you. Now, you need guides for your desert work. You need mentors. You need a community. That's where the church comes in. You may go to the desert alone, but you can't understand what happens in the desert by yourself. And you can't benefit it alone. You need a discipleship group that helps you unpack and make sense of your desert experience. But they can't do it for you. And when we talk about spiritual practices, this is what we're talking about. Practicing the presence of God. To play like a champion, you have to practice like a champion. There was once a virtuoso violinist who played an extended concert and just thrilled everybody. And one young man came up after him and said, I would would give everything I have to play like that. And the violinist said, I did. The life of Jesus tells us that if we want to be like Jesus in the marketplace, society, we must make room for God's spirit to work in the desert of solitude. And too often, we want church and worship services like this to be our desert. We want to connect with God in public. And I'm just here to tell you, that's never going to be adequate. If we don't worship God alone, we will not worship much when we're together. Public worship has little power to change those who don't see God alone. Public worship is an appetizer for the meal. But the best meals are taken in the company of God alone. And if we seek God daily alone, then our gatherings can become powerful moments of celebration and transformation because we come full and ready to give to others from the depths of what God has been doing in us and we can share out of the things that God has been speaking to us and we can enrich and encourage each other because we each have a gift to give and so we can give and receive. But if you expect too much from public worship, you will crush it with your need. If you consistently come empty because you haven't spent time with God in the desert, you're going to leave disappointed and critical. 
I really do believe that most of the worship wars that we had in the 90s and the early 2000s and even in today were driven by the fact that we made worship just too important because it was the only meal we were going to get all week long. And we came starving and we left still undernourished. We just asked too much from our public worship because it's the only place we go. Church gatherings can give us courage and motivation to enter the desert and help us interpret the desert, but they are not the desert. And so if weekly gatherings are all, our, all we have, we will barely live or starve to death. Church gatherings like this make a great halftime, but it's not the game. We aren't called to build big churches, but rather faithful followers of our master. And that takes making the ways of Jesus as important as the words of Jesus. Now, I have good news for you. Jesus is desperately looking for people he can trust with his power and his life. He wants to give this to you. But it won't happen by trying harder to be good That only leads to failure. It happens by learning to trust and practice the rhythm of the life of Jesus, modeled and taught by his life pattern. Because in the desert where you can do nothing and you realize you are nothing without him, you learn to surrender so that when you leave, you have his power working through you to actually do something meaningful in the world. So are you ready for more life? Well, try imitating the rhythm of Jesus from the desert to the marketplace, from the desert to the marketplace. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we do want more than the blood of Jesus. Thank you for the sacrifice. Thank you for the grace. Thank you for paying for our sins. Thank you for embracing death that we might have life. But Lord, we don't just want you for your blood. We want the life, the life that we see in Jesus. Please, Lord, give us your life. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for that. Thank you so much for listening to the message from the Greenville Oaks message broadcast. We hope this message enriched your life and can help you inspire others to follow Jesus because we honestly believe following him is the best way of life possible. Be sure to connect with us online on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube.